1: Born in Exeter in 1547, the same year that Henry VIII died, Nicholas Hilliard may not be a household name today. But suppose I asked you to imagine Elizabeth I. The chances are that what you would see in your mind's eye is an image painted by Hilliard. His images have become our images. Who was this man? How did he rise to become the first English born court painter? and then fall to be imprisoned at the age of 70. How is the life of this individual like a lens through which we can see the political and religious changes of the second half of the 16th century up close, magnified? What is his legacy today? Here to discuss the technicolour of Hilliard's life and his paintings is Dr Elizabeth Goldring, Honorary Reader at the University of Warwick Centre for the Study of the Renaissance. Her book, Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist, was published in 2019 to mark the 400th anniversary of Hilliard's death and to coincide with the National Portrait Gallery's Elizabethan Treasures Exhibition. Dr Goldring, I'm really, really pleased that you've joined me to talk about Hilliard because there are so many questions to ask about him and your work on him is so groundbreaking. Such detective work that you've done that we'll talk about in due course that it's a real honour that you've come to join us.
2: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and It's interesting that you mentioned the detective work angle, because for me, that's what is always most fun about history, is that sense of trying to solve a mystery and trying to piece clues together. And it really felt like that with the Hilliard book. So it's interesting that that came through, and that makes me very happy to hear that.
1: Let's start, given that we're talking about Hilliard, with the micro, with the miniature. He is most famed for his miniatures. Can you describe them to us, how big they are, what they were made from?
2: Absolutely. Well, the answer to that changes slightly over the course of his career. But I guess what we might think of as the classic Hilliard and what he started off painting in the early 1570s and what really made his name were tiny head and shoulders portraits on sheets of vellum about the size of a jam jar lid or a modern watch face. They tended initially to be circular. He later gravitated towards oval formats. Typically, the sitter is portrayed against a plain blue background and there is an inscription in gold around the rim that perhaps gives the date and the sitter's age. As time passed, Hilliard introduced all sorts of innovations. He gravitated from round to oval. He tended to experiment with different colors of background, eventually branched out into something called cabinet miniatures, more the size of a penguin paperback or an iPhone, and often rectangular in shape and with all sorts of background props and features of the sort you might expect in a large-scale oil painting But he never stopped making the classic Hilliard, the round head and shoulders portrait with a blue background. And it seems that even at the end of his career, sitters who were going to just commission one picture from him in the course of their lives, if there was just going to be one, they wanted it to be the classic Hilliard, the one that had made his name. How would Hilliard have painted these miniatures? What was his process? Interestingly enough, he doesn't seem to have done preliminary drawings. He seems to have worked directly on the vellum. But before actually applying paint to the vellum, he had to prepare the vellum itself. So vellum is cough skin. It had to be stretched onion skin thin. And then to create a stiff enough surface that you could actually apply paint to, he would paste it to an ordinary playing card And then with the tooth of a dog would burnish the vellum surface so that there were no lumps and bumps. And then he could start applying paint, having prepped the pigments, which he typically would have bought from an apothecary. Normally, he would start by outlining the face, costume and jewelry would come very nearly lost. The final touch would be the gold inscription on top of the blue background, possibly a line around the periphery. In terms of taking the sitter's likeness, Hilliard liked to have two or even better three sittings, each lasting several hours, depending on the sitter's patience. The sitter was allowed to read a book or to chat or to listen to music, to pass the time. He needed to be quite close, just a few feet away. And one gets the sense from his treatise on miniature painting, in which he gives away some of his trade secrets, that particularly with female sitters, he thought flirtation was an important part of the portraitist's art, that he was more likely to elicit a pretty smile and perhaps a blush to the cheek if he had managed to draw out the female sitter with a few flattering comments. And I think certainly Hilliard's portraits of female sitters are notable for probably erring on the flattering side of things. Were there any qualities
1: that a painter needed to do this work? I mean, obviously, apart from a steady hand, I'm aware that he set some rules for himself.
2: Absolutely. Again, in his treatise on miniature painting, he talks at length about the characteristics and attributes that are necessary. One is to be blessed with God-given talents. He's at great pains to say that God chose him from birth for greatness and endowed him with exceptional abilities. And Hilliard also claims to, therefore, have been completely self-taught. I suspect that's not entirely true. I suspect there's a little bit of poetic license going on there. He insists that silk should be worn because you don't want to wear woolens which might have fibres that would fall on your wet paint surface.
0: The first and chiefest precept which I give is cleanliness and therefore fittest for gentlemen. That the practiser of limning be precisely pure and cleanly in all his doings, as in grinding his colours in place where there is neither dust nor smoke, the water well chosen or distilled most pure, as the water distilled from the water of some clear spring. Let your apparel be silk, such as sheddeth least dust or hairs. Beware you touch not your work with your fingers or any hard thing, but brush it with a clean pencil or with a white feather." Neither breathe on it, especially in cold weather. Take heed of the dandruff of the head shedding from the hair and of speaking over your work, for the least sparkling of spittle will never be helped if it light in the face.
2: He advises against exhaling too forcefully in the winter months, again for fear of condensation. Basically, cleanliness is all in the painter's studio and I think partly this is Hilliard making a point about miniature painting not, in his eyes, being manual labor. He's at great pains to contrast miniature painting with sculpture, oil painting, goldsmithery as pursuits that leave the hands sullied, whereas miniature painting is for gentlemen your hands won't be stained, you'll be there in your silks, there will be nothing messy or dirty going on. It will all be very gentle and very suitable for the well-born. Social mobility is something of a leitmotif with Hilliard and a real obsession. And that comes through in his treatise on miniature painting and also in his self-presentation. His self-portrait, painted when he was about 30, is pretty much indistinguishable from the portraits that he was painting of aristocratic sitters around the same time. He's very keen at all times, I think, to present himself as a gentleman. He probably wouldn't appreciate then what I'm about to say, which
1: is that, however, like manual labourer, his work surely was necessarily restricted to the hours of daylight and therefore seasonal.
2: Such a good point and one that I think is easily forgotten, but I think it must have been very difficult for him to do much, if any, work in the winter months. And a hint of that comes through in some of his correspondence. There's some rather amusing correspondence from the 1590s in which he is trying to explain to a patron why he's several years behind schedule with a particular commission. And his excuse, and Hilliard was a great one for excuses for why he was behind schedule with all sorts of things. But in this case, I suspect there's more than a grain of truth. His excuse was that he just hadn't had enough good sunlight to do the work. So I think that must have been a real challenge. And one of the interesting things I discovered when I was researching the book is that Hilliard seems in the summertime often to have accompanied Queen Elizabeth and the court on their progresses, which would have been a really smart move on his part, not just because Obviously in the summertime you have at least the promise of potentially long sunny evenings and long sunny days. But obviously his key client base would have all been gathered together in one place and potentially a lot of work could have been done in a short space of time. So you've given us a sense already that miniatures were often intended for
1: the very highest echelons of society – But given how difficult they are, why paint such small images?
2: Well, miniatures were very desirable in the 16th and 17th centuries because they were portable and Long before the invention of photography, much less the instantly communicable images that we now send on our iPhones, the miniature was a way to send an image to a loved one. Often soldiers took miniatures of beloveds into battle. Husbands and wives often exchanged miniatures if one had to travel and they were going to be separated by great distance. They were very intimate images that could be slipped in a pocket and very appealing for that reason, and also, of course, very useful for royal diplomacy, particularly where royal marriage negotiations were concerned. So I think one has to try to get back into the mindset of the 16th and 17th centuries and. Think about how wonderful it would have been to have this portable image that you could slip in your pocket or easily give to someone else to transport to a loved one who's far away. In the same way that we are rarely without our phones today, and many of us have as our screensaver an image of a beloved child or spouse, I think the miniature performed a similar function in the 16th century, but obviously at a much higher spec as a work of art when executed by someone like Hilliard.
1: Now, in your research, you discovered that in July 1571, Hilliard found himself in the gardens of Hampton Court Palace, sitting with Queen Elizabeth I to paint her for a miniature that she would send to Catherine de' Medici. And at this point, he was just 24. But what's fascinating is the way that you write the story of how Hilliard came to be there, because you show this intricate weaving of his life with the political and religious events unfolding at the time. And you've explored these early years up to 1571 in much greater detail than many of the people who've worked on Hilliard before. So could you tell us about these years up to 1571, starting with his life in Exeter?
2: Absolutely. Hilliard was born probably in 1547, so the tail end of Henry VIII's reign. His father was a goldsmith. Both of his grandfathers were goldsmiths. The Hilliards were staunch Protestants, loyal to the Protestant Tudor regime, I'm sure that the expectation from the moment Hilliard was born was that he would follow in the footsteps of his father and grandfathers and also become a goldsmith. I suspect the expectation was that he would spend his entire life in Exeter, perhaps end up working alongside his father in his father's goldsmith's workshop. Events took a slightly different turn. Had Hilliard been born a few years earlier or a few years later, he might well, I suspect, have ended up in Exeter for his entire life. But life in Exeter became rather tricky when Mary Tudor came to the throne for ardent Protestants like the Hilliards. And Richard Hilliard could not afford to do what a lot of Protestants at the time were doing, which was going into exile on the continent But he was able to secure a place for Nicholas, his firstborn, in the household of another prominent and far wealthier Protestant family in Exeter, the Bodleys. So for about four and a half years, between the ages of about eight and 12 or 13, Nicholas Hilliard lived on the continent with the Bodley family in a succession of Protestant strongholds. They spent about a year in Vesel, which is on what is now the German-Dutch border. They spent about another year in Frankfurt and then about two and a half years in Geneva, where they worshipped in John Knox's congregation. When Elizabeth came to the throne, the Bodleys and young Hilliard came back to England. Normally, it had been assumed by previous Hilliard biographers that Hilliard stayed with the Bodleys at that point in London. I, in fact, discovered that it seems far more likely that he went back to Exeter. I think probably at this point, the expectation was still that he would pick up where he'd left off and train as a goldsmith alongside his father. Economic circumstances in Exeter, however, took a bit of a downturn for goldsmiths and other craftsmen. And Richard Hilliard, in the early 1560s, seems to have decided that possibly the future was not looking so bright for his four sons, all of whom I think he perhaps had hoped would become goldsmiths, but was increasingly realising would not perhaps be able to find work in Exeter So Richard managed to set up apprenticeships in London with leading London goldsmiths for his first two sons, Nicholas and Nicholas's brother, John. So in the early 1560s, Nicholas goes off to London at the age of about 15 and is apprenticed to a man named Robert Brandon, who was one of the Queen's goldsmiths. So really, he couldn't have had a better apprenticeship. He spent the next seven years living in Brandon's household, shadowing Brandon Normally, you would expect an apprentice to emerge from his apprenticeship, skilled in the areas that his master was known for. Brandon was known for producing plate and he was also known for money lending and banking. Goldsmiths in this period often doubled as bankers and money lenders. Hilliard emerged from his apprenticeship, knowing how to make jewelry, not plate, knowing how to paint miniatures, which was nothing that Brandon knew about and being absolutely hopeless with money. He seems not to have learned anything at all about financial management from Brandon. So precisely what Hilliard was doing during his apprenticeship, we don't know. And how he managed to fit in learning how to paint miniatures and from whom is also unclear. But he certainly emerged from his apprenticeship with Brandon with excellent connections at court. Brandon had long been banker and money lender to the Queen's favourite, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. And Dudley went on to be one of Hilliard's first patrons. We know that Dudley was commissioning jewellery from Hilliard pretty much straight away after Hilliard had finished his apprenticeship and set up his own goldsmith shop. And Dudley also then started commissioning miniatures from Hilliard, which is how Hilliard came to find himself in a garden at Hampton Court in the summer of 1571. Dudley had sent a miniature of himself by Hilliard to Catherine de' Medici, which Catherine loved. Dudley and Catherine were regularly exchanging pictures at this date and Catherine responded very enthusiastically to that miniature and asked for Dudley to send her one of the Queen made by the same artist and in the same manner. So Dudley lost no time and within a couple of weeks Hilliard had been summoned to Hampton Court and was portraying the Queen outdoors.
0: This makes me to remember the words also and reasoning of Her Majesty when first I came in Her Highness's presence to draw, who, after showing me how she noted great difference in shadowing in the works and the diversity of drawers of different nations, and that the Italians, who had the name to be cunningest and to draw best, shadowed not, chose her place to sit in for that purpose in the open alley of a goodly garden, where no tree was near nor any shadow at all.
2: I shouldn't have thought that portraying the queen outdoors would have been Hilliard's choice, given Hilliard's mania for cleanliness and order. I can't imagine him being very relaxed about being outdoors. I mean, if a leaf would have blown onto the wet paint or if a bird had passed overhead, I can imagine him getting a bit excitable about it. But here he is at the age of 24 with a one-on-one audience with the Queen. Perhaps Dudley was there as well. If Hilliard's later recollections are to be trusted, they chatted about the painters and painting styles of various nations. So he's really suddenly living the Albertian dream of the artist as a gentleman deemed fit company for royalty and courtiers and he really never looked back from that moment. He continued to enjoy the Queen's patronage until the end of her life and then would almost seamlessly segue into a similar level of royal patronage with James I. So it really was the most extraordinary career for 50 years from that moment in the garden at Hampton Court. Hilliard was consistently in demand with patrons at the highest levels. When you said Albertian, was that a reference to Durer? Well, indirectly, I was really referring to Leon Battista Alberti, who wrote a treatise on painting in Italy that helped to make the case for the painter as the practitioner of a learned liberal art, as opposed to the practitioner of a lowly manual art And Dürer would fall under Alberti's spell after a trip to Italy and would himself write treatises in German, making a similar point. And eventually, Hilliard will do the same thing in English. So there is this lovely line of descent, and Hilliard is very conscious of that line of descent because in his treatise on miniature painting, he loses no opportunity to drop Alberti's name or drop Dürer's name.
0: The most excellent Albert Dürer was born in Germany, which breedeth, or might breed, more than a hundred workmen for us one, this Albert being as exquisite and perfect a painter and master in the art of engraving on copper as ever was since the world began. Wherefore, hatching with the pen, in imitation of some fine, well-engraven portraiture of Albertus Dürer's small pieces, is first to be practised and used before one begins to limn, and not to learn to limn at all, till one can imitate the prince so well as one shall not know the one from the other.
2: He clearly sees himself as very much in the same company and self-consciously trying to do for painters in England what Dürer had done for painters in Germany and Alberti had done for painters in Italy, which is to elevate their status and to make painting a topic deemed worthy of conversation by the well-born and the learned, and to make the painter someone deemed as fit company for the learned and the well-born. When Hilliard was born in England, there wasn't by and large a huge distinction between what we would think of as fine art painting and any other sort of painting. So most English people in the 16th century wouldn't necessarily have drawn a huge distinction between someone like Hilliard, and the person you might hire to repaint your house. And that all changes over the course of Hilliard's lifetime and largely thanks to Hilliard himself, his treatise and his own efforts through his own smart dressing and general efforts at self-presentation to emphasize at all times that he, as a painter, was also a gentleman.
0: How can toilet-training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty, TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of The Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, there may be all sorts of products like avocados and everything will have palm oil in it etc. And these have not just long distances involved in, it, but they're not actually producing what could be produced on the land and the frame that it's set. And my old friend Jamie Oliver, I think I was stupid enough naive enough and unspoiled enough about the world that we live in listen to on jimmy's farm now wherever you get your podcasts when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer
2: Wherever you get your podcasts,
1: brought to you by History Hit. What I was wondering about was whether that time as an exile on the continent, and then in fact even his time in London when there would have been émigrés from France and the low countries whether this had exposed him to people like Dürer and other artists and shaped him as an artist, if that was a formative period in your view?
2: I think it absolutely was a formative period, particularly, I think, the time in Frankfurt, where I suspect Hilliard was exposed for the first time to Dürer's works and possibly also to some of Dürer's writings. Durer was dead by the time that Hilliard visited Frankfurt, but there would have been local memories of Durer, who had been a familiar feature at the Frankfurt Book Fair, sometimes appearing in person or sending his wife to sell copies of his prints and books. And a very famous altarpiece by Durer, now known as the Heller Altarpiece, was already, by the 1550s, something of a tourist attraction in Frankfurt. So it's entirely possible that Hilliard saw that. But certainly I think it would have been difficult for him to have spent a year living in Frankfurt in the early 1550s and not have at least heard mention of Dorr's name. And I suspect that a lot of the appeal of Dorr was not just his artistry, but also possibly his personal circumstances. Dora was the son of a provincial goldsmith. Obviously, Hilliard was as well. And Dora rose from these relatively modest beginnings to become a figure of international stature who revolutionized the status of painting and the painter in his homeland. And of course, Hilliard will go on to do the same thing. And so we can't know for certain, but I think it's suggestive that possibly He heard a bit about Dora at a young age and it planted the seed of an idea and fired some of his own ambitions. More generally, however, I'm sure that Hilliard would have seen works of art and been exposed to ideas in Basel, in Frankfurt and in Geneva that he wouldn't have seen in Exeter had he not gone into exile. And this must have fired the imagination of a young boy who clearly had artistic Leanings and inclinations. And I suspect it was very formative. Had he remained in Exeter for his entire childhood, I'm not sure that he ever would have got into miniature painting, for example.
1: So here we have him painting his first miniature of Elizabeth, that is intended for Catherine de' Medici. Could you tell us a bit more about the climate of, I guess we might call it, competitive portraiture that existed between the queens.
2: Early in her reign, Elizabeth did not have a Hilliard at her disposal. In fact, didn't really have anyone very good in terms of painters at her disposal. And insofar as we can reconstruct events from surviving correspondence, Elizabeth seems to have been embarrassed at various times early in her reign when exchanging portraits with other courts, particularly other queens, such as Catherine de' Medici and Mary Queen of Scots, who had more sophisticated painters at their disposal. And sometimes one detects in the letters that both Mary Queen of Scots and Catherine de' Medici wrote on receipt of portraits of Elizabeth, slightly waspish comments on how workmanlike the images that she was sending were. So I think Elizabeth would have been absolutely delighted once she made Hilliard's acquaintance to realize that she finally had a world-class painter at her disposal, and Dudley and other leading courtiers in Elizabeth's inner circle would have been delighted as well. Dudley and William Cecil spent a great deal of the 1560s looking for a good portrait painter who could create an official image of the Queen. They were very concerned about the poor quality of images of Elizabeth in circulation and what that said about her and by extension England. Having a good portrait was very much about public relations and so Hilliard was very much in the service of the state and once Elizabeth had him in her service she wasn't about to let him go.
1: And there's this great demand, this clamour for portraits, for miniatures by Hilliard In the aftermath of the 1571 portrait, tell us about this fashion for his art.
2: Absolutely. Well, once he has the Queen's stamp of approval, of course, everyone else at court then wants to be portrayed by him. And there's also a trickle down to what I suppose we might think of as the aspiring middle classes. We know that Hilliard charged about five pounds for a miniature So anyone who could afford that could go into his workshop on Gutter Lane, just off Cheapside, and could order a miniature. I mean, £5, it must be said, was a lot of money, more than most people earned in a year. I found in the course of my research that an architect in, I think it was Chester, would have earned about £3 in a year. So you had to be very well off to purchase a miniature from Hilliard. And that £5 would only buy you the image on vellum if you wanted to encase it in an elaborate bejeweled setting, which a lot of people did do. Obviously, that was a separate expense and would have involved getting a jeweller involved. So you did have to have deep pockets, but you didn't necessarily need to be of royal or noble birth to sit to Hilliard.
1: And there was a demand for people to have themselves painted. But we also see this demand to possess a miniature of the Queen, is it that that explains what we've come to think of as you know the mask of youth or the mask of queenship
2: yes absolutely hilliard in the 1570s when he portrayed the queen made a number of bespoke one-off images of her by the 1580s perhaps because the queen was finding that quite time consuming and the demand for images of her was growing she and hilliard together devised something which, for convenience, I dubbed the mask of queenship in my book. And so basically, once Hilliard and the Queen had agreed on the facial template, the Queen didn't need to involve herself further. And as and when she needed to send a miniature to a foreign ruler or wanted to reward one of her own courtiers with the gift of her own image, Hilliard or members of his workshop could just work up another version, they always seemed to have varied the jewellery and the clothing so that if recipients compared notes, each person would feel they had something different and unique and there would ideally not be hard feelings. But the Queen certainly, after that initial phase of devising, the facial template didn't need to be involved any further. So it was a much more efficient way of meeting the increased demand for images of her. It was a bit of a double-edged sword for courtiers who were given these miniatures of the Queen because the fashion was to wear them at court and of course it was a great badge of honor to show all your fellow courtiers that you were in royal favor and the Queen had given you her image But you had to encase it in a suitably splendid bejeweled setting. And whereas the queen was willing to pay for bejeweled settings when sending her image to a foreign monarch, she was in the main not willing to pay when giving her image to her own courtiers. And there are some amusing letters that survive of courtiers saying, oh, it's wonderful, the queen has given me her image, but now I'm going to be bankrupt, having to come up with a setting. So it was a bit actually like courtiers who hosted the queen on her progresses. It was a wonderful honour to have the queen come to stay, but sometimes you had to build a whole new wing to your house to accommodate her, which proved financially disastrous for many. So interesting one-upsmanship on the part of courtiers, trying to find ways to afford ever more splendid settings for the Queen's image. And then in the 1590s, once the mask of queenship had been around for nearly a decade, Hilliard devised a new mask for the Queen, which again, just for convenience, is known by art historians as the mask of youth. As the name implies, this was a facial template, which in spite of the fact that the Queen was now well into her 60s and by all accounts losing her hair and her teeth, This was an image that turned back the clock, made her look like a youthful, beautiful maiden. I suppose the equivalent, to think in modern terms, of photoshopping, getting rid of all those wrinkles. The Queen seems to have loved this. As I mentioned earlier, Hilliard was very good at flattering female sitters. And again, this was an image that could be produced as and when required for distribution to courtiers at home or monarchs abroad. And in this case, the Queen doesn't even seem to have had to trouble herself with an initial sitting. The image was, I think, so divorced from the reality of what the Queen looked like at that stage that it seems that Hilliard worked either from earlier images he had done 20 or 30 years previously, or simply worked from memory. So really very time efficient from the Queen's point of view.
1: Now the clamour for his painting is such that Hilliard was sent, or took himself off, depending on how you look at it, to France when he was 29. And this period is particularly interesting because it's quite a difficult time for him yet it seems to be another very formative period
2: as well. Can you tell us about it? This was actually one of my favourite sections to research and write for the book. Hilliard spent about two and a half years in France, from 1576 to late 1578. He had managed, probably with the help of the Queen and Dudley, to get himself a position in the household of the Duke of Anjou, who was the younger brother of Henri-Trois, the King of France, Anjou needed a good court painter. He was in a fairly bitter rivalry with his brother and trying to establish a satellite court. So he was looking for a painter who could help burnish his image and give him the upper hand in his competition with Henri Trois. Meanwhile, Anjou was involved in on-again, off-again marriage negotiations with Elizabeth, which dragged on for much of the 1570s and was no doubt looking for intelligence about what was going on at the English court and which way Elizabeth might be leaning at the moment in terms of the marriage question. No doubt Elizabeth and Dudley had an agenda of their own and were hoping that Hilliard could glean intelligence from Anjou and from the French court more generally. So I suspect that Hilliard was expected to do a bit of spying whilst in France, He had excellent French from the two and a half years he had spent in Geneva whilst a child in Marian exile. And miniature painting, of course, would have been an ideal cover for a spy because, as we discussed earlier, Hilliard liked to do three sittings, ideally each lasting several hours while sitting just a few feet away from his subject. So a really wonderful opportunity to observe goings on and to get a feel for what was happening in Anjou's household. Hilliard ended up staying in France, I think, much longer than anyone initially anticipated. I suspect that at the outset, the plan was that he would spend about six months there. But as I mentioned, he ended up spending about two and a half years, in part, I think, because he was just not very good at meeting deadlines, but also because religious and political events got a bit complicated and the wars of religion really hotted up while he was there and it all got a bit tricky. And I think in many ways he was lucky to get out alive. And it's at
1: this time that he paints his portrait as a gentleman, isn't it? Even though he's actually fleeing financial trouble. Indeed, probably from
2: Hilliard's point of view, a bonus to the timing of this gig at the French court was that he was facing, as you say, financial ruin in England and was able, temporarily at least, to escape various of his creditors by leaving England to go to France and no doubt told himself that Not only was he buying himself some time, but also that he would somehow be able to make the money that he needed whilst in France to pay off the creditors in England when he got back. Need to say, it didn't quite work out that way. In spite of the fact that Hilliard seems to have earned a tremendous lot of money whilst in France, he just always seems to have spent whatever he earned within about five minutes of earning it. But nonetheless, as you point out, he paints this extraordinary self-portrait midway through his time in France, in which he very much presents himself as a gentleman. It's comparable, almost the mirror image really, to a miniature of Robert Dudley Earl of Leicester that Hilliard painted right before his departure for France. And so there is, I think, this extraordinary self-fashioning going on, and it may not be accidental that this portrait is painted whilst Hilliard is in France. France was a bit ahead of England in terms of adopting the Albertian idea of the painter as the practitioner of a liberal art. And we know that Hilliard was mingling with a lot of people at the French court who were at the forefront of these new aesthetic theories. So I think it's probably not coincidence that Hilliard paints this extraordinary self-portrait at a time when he is surrounded by people like Blaise de Vigenère and Pierre de Concord, who are very much exploring in their own writings the idea of painters and poets as practitioners of liberal art. And so I think Hilliard ends up coming back to England, unfortunately not with enough money to stay ahead of his creditors, but with these very exalted ideas of his own calling and his own mission and his own social status, Fortunately, his father-in-law was able to bail him out on the financial front when he got back to England. His father-in-law, incidentally, was Robert Brandon, to whom he had been apprenticed many years earlier. It was not uncommon in this period for a gifted apprentice to marry one of the daughters of his master. And that's exactly what Hilliard did.
1: Why was someone who charged so much in so much debt in the first place?
2: It is one of the great mysteries how Hilliard never seems to have had any money. But clearly, I think he developed expensive tastes. I think once he had a peek behind palace doors, he wanted to live as the other half lived and I think very much lived large. He was forever borrowing money either from his father-in-law or his own father, or various friends and fellow goldsmiths. And normally, these transactions ended in tears. And often, in the case of the money that Hilliard borrowed from various fellow goldsmiths, often litigation arose. And Hilliard, unfortunately, doesn't come out of these situations terribly well, in that the surviving documentation pertaining to various pieces of litigation that arose from these disputes suggests a pattern of fairly unattractive conduct on Hilliard's part. His Emma seems to have been initially to deny that he'd ever borrowed the money. Then if proven wrong on that count, he would normally say that he had repaid it and his friend had just forgotten. And if, again, that was disproven, he would normally find some other far-fetched excuse or possibly try to call in a favour from someone well-placed at court he was not above calling in favours from the likes of Dudley and the Cecils when backed into a corner and needless to say this did not endear him to his fellow goldsmiths, one of whom memorably complained that Hilliard was given to standing too much upon his reputation and one does get the sense that Hilliard rubbed a lot of his fellow goldsmiths the wrong way. One gets the sense that he Not only was not terribly honourable in his financial dealings, but also one just gets the sense that he was possibly forever bragging about his connections at court, forever putting on air. So one doesn't get the sense that Hilliard would have been terribly down to earth at the pub with his fellow goldsmiths, that he would always have been keen to remind them that he'd just seen the Queen last week and that he was seeing Dudley tomorrow or what have you. He doesn't seem to have been terribly popular at Goldsmith's Hall. That's so interesting
1: that he was an emotional financial mess, but that the miniatures were his compensation. They were the place where he could control everything and it was perfect.
2: Absolutely. Hilliard's Art of Limning. His treatise on miniature painting has various autobiographical passages, some of which suggest that Hilliard really struggled with what we, I suppose, would call depression. He alludes in the treatise and also in some of his correspondence to really struggling at times. And one gets the sense that sometimes he could barely get out of bed in the morning, and that this was perhaps sometimes a contributing factor when he struggled to meet deadlines. So again, in terms of our sense of the whole person, I think one has to factor this in, that he clearly had some demons, as indeed did his son Lawrence, the only one of his children who followed him into miniature painting. Poor Lawrence, I think, didn't really want to be a miniature painter, but had his arm twisted. And given the evidence of the miniatures by Lawrence that survived, he didn't have his father's talent at all. And at one stage seems to have become so despondent that he actually took the extraordinary step of hiring some men to attack him in the street so that he could claim that his hand had been so badly damaged that he couldn't continue as a miniature painter. So I don't know if Lawrence also suffered from what we would call depression, but clearly he wasn't very happy having been arm-twisted into following his father into miniature paintings. So again, a complex family dynamic, shall we say, and one that, you know, really is sort of heartrending to think about and read about.
1: We've concentrated on the first part of his life, but ultimately, Hilliard's life shows us the power of both one's context and one's choices, doesn't it? Can you tell us what became of him in his closing years and that interplay of context and choice?
2: Well, Hilliard's final years are actually rather sad in spite of the fact that he enjoyed the patronage of James I when James came to the English throne after Elizabeth's death. So Hilliard continued seamlessly from Queen's Limna to King's Limna And actually was much better paid under James than he had been under Elizabeth. And so in theory, should have perhaps finally been on a secure financial footing. In fact, it all really unraveled in the final years of Hilliard's life. He ended up losing the lease on his house and workshop on Gutter Lane, ended up spending a spell in debtor's prison in the final year or so of his life, He was still working right up until the end and still producing work for high profile patrons, including the king. But he just didn't have any money and his will makes for rather sad reading. And he was, I think, pretty much alone at the end. He lived into his early 70s, a great Age at this time. So he had outlived his wife, Alice, outlived most of his contemporary painters, outlived many of the painters he had trained as students. One of the extraordinary discoveries made during my research on the book, not by me, it must be said, but by an archivist at the National Archives, who kindly shared it with me, was the discovery of the original manuscript of Hilliard's Will, which had been in a box in the basement of the National Archives, miscatalogued. And Ruth Salmon, the archivist, very kindly shared this with me, just as my book was going to press and we were able to include an image of it at the 11th hour. And it's an extraordinary document because Hilliard on his deathbed has dictated this document and then attempted to sign it. But at this point was clearly so weak that he could barely hold the pen. And so has just really scratched out his initials. And the contrast between that and the precision with which he had obviously held pen and paintbrush for most of his life is really heart-wrenching and just so sad to think of this incredibly rich life, this incredible journey from the provinces to the heart of the Tudor and Stuart courts, all the interesting people he'd met and portrayed along the way, all the incredible historic events to which he was an eyewitness. And then at the end, effectively bankrupt, alone, very sad indeed, yet the miniature's Live on, And I think that for most of us, if we think of pretty much any key figure from the second half of the 16th century, early 17th century, whatever mental image we have, whether it's Drake, Raleigh, Elizabeth the first, that image is probably, if not a Hilliard miniature, derived in some way from a Hilliard miniature. He really has shaped perceptions of all the key players of the age in ways that continue to reverberate centuries on.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking us on this wonderful tour of Hilliard's life, of his work, of his character, of his formation, his influences. It's been a real treat. Thank you so much. If people want to know more, they must, of course, go and pick up a copy of your wonderful and gloriously illustrated, as one might expect, book, Nicholas Hilliard, Life of an Artist. It's a really amazing work of art in itself and a very enjoyable read. So thank you very much for joining me today on Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess, and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.